Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, I'm Ani Abadisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three-part spirit... One part, rational mind, add two drops of optimism, give it all a good heart shake and pour, dress it with the olives of grace and empathy, sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there, hello, 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 thanks for joining me for yet another round of Cosmic Cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's polarized little world. We can't always sort it out or answer your questions, but we always give it a jolly good shot. And on this show, we do love shots. And as always, we do this with as much grace and empathy as can be mustered on any given day. Always remembering that we are all of us, manifestations of supreme cosmic intelligence. Simply having temporary individualized physical experiences during a time of great challenge and transformation, and I believe and hope transformation for the better. Our rally cry is, Awaken, O my people! Do not follow the path of the sheeple, and do not give your God cause to weeple. Now, we might change that or refine it at some point because, um, well, I'm pretty sure God doesn't weeple, but it brings the home, you know, brings the point home well enough for now. The main purpose of this show, well, it's to answer your questions and to hear your comments. And, uh, you know, we do this in the name of evolution, the betterment of mankind, the expansion of consciousness for the self and for the collective realization of our realm. So if you want to ask any questions or rant or, you know, give us any comments, stuff to talk about, send them all in to Arnie at ArnieAvedician.com if you're doing the email thing. Or if you're doing the snail mail, which is great, let's keep the post office working, send those to Cosmic Arnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, United States of America. And if you'd like to know more about my work, visit my website, arniavadician.com. And if you feel like it, sign up for my monthly newsletter, Monday Messages. Like me, it's short, it's sweet, and it's filled with buttery goodness. And in addition to the Metaphysical Martini Show, I have the pleasure of co-hosting the Say What Show on the second Saturday of each month, right here on Cosmic Reality Radio with Jolly Dolly Howard and Fancy Nancy Hopkins. And folks, if that wasn't enough, I have my own YouTube where you can find about 100 and counting short videos on popular New Age subjects and a few on unpopular New Age subjects, plus some of my poetry, some spoofy songs and postcards from Zook, the little tiny pink alien from Pincus Major. And we will be adding affirmations and meditations as soon as we are allowed back into the studio. I'd like to dedicate this show to all the brave men and women who have diligently researched agendas behind the mainstream narratives. Those who have been relentlessly ridiculed by the very people whose freedoms they wish to preserve. Those who raise the alarm time and time again to awaken the sleeping masses who in turn press the snooze button on their development and continue to sleep the comfortable sleep of the conformist. We sincerely hope that when you finally awaken, the world around you resembles something worth living for. And if I have anything to do with it, it will. So, my darlings, today is Wednesday, April 29th, 2020, and our world currently feels more polarized than ever. I mean, a third of the public, they live in fear of contracting the covert identification virus. 
And then one third, they see the scenario for what it truly is, and they're speaking out. And I think roughly one third have no idea about anything really, but they're smiling and they're muddling through as best they can. Of course, the polarity shift started before the virus scenario, you know, with the ascension process, which started roughly 2012, comes a great illumination. And in the illumination, we see what was hidden. And what was hidden so well in plain sight, you ask? Well, I will tell you, it was the plan to eliminate the middle class and to erode our intellect. The plan to reduce the class system to slaves and masters. If we think about it, and we should always be thinking, this started in earnest during trickle-down economics, and it was honed to a fine polish by offshore banking. So the plan to run the planet as one company, that's what I'm talking about. No borders, no national sovereignty, no individual sovereignty, no local color, no diversity, just the 1% as the overlords with a small tier of planetary managers under them, <clears throat> and under them, everybody else. This is the ideology that we call deep state. And if we don't understand that, we don't really understand anything that's happening on the world arena today. Now, deep state, it's not a group of reptilians dressed as humans in a wood paneled room, sipping expensive scotch. Although I'm not saying that doesn't happen, because actually it does. But I choose not to dwell on that today. After all, it's not inconceivable, is it, in a universe filled with millions of habitable planets, that there would exist a military-minded, conquest-driven race of reptilians or other species that cruise the universe looking for planets to plunder, to conquer, to rule over, either by outright conquest or by a slower means of covert, um, a covert operation of infiltration. Well, I did say I'm not going to go into details about the establishment's reptilian roots on this show, <clears throat> and I'm not. But it does help, I think, to understand deep state a little better if we entertain the idea of Earth as a colonized planet in a greater empire, a franchise of sorts, where the groupthink is implemented through the company mission statement. The human workers, we think we have free will, but we don't because we've been trained to respond to the company's suggestion of what is right and what is wrong. So let's do a very brief, inter, uh, a little brief overview of Deep State. A lot of the questions that came in this week were all about Deep State. What is Deep State? What is Illuminati? And I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to give an overview that I think um, I'm going to present it in a way I feel I haven't presented before. So. Here's a few pins. Pin number one, I guess. America, America became really pretty influential on the world arena after World War II, when we rounded up all the top brains in Europe and brought them to the USA and made them work for the establishment, the American establishment. The Brits got some, but the Americans got most of it. And these people were rocket scientists, yes, but they were also pioneers of eugenics, um, technicians, uh, all manner of disciplines, really. So America didn't just plunder the collective intellect after World War II of Europe, but also sowed the seeds of corporate infiltration. And what that does is it puts the power in the hands of private sector and not government departments. Um, I don't think any of you are, you know, maybe some of you are old enough to remember Eisenhower, but he was very concerned about what he called unwarranted influence of a small handful of people in the United States, in the corporate world, and the effect that it would have on American society. So we're seeing after World War II the seeds of corporate power being gently watered by people called Rothschild, Mellon, Carnegie, Rockefeller, <clears throat> Astor, Warburg, you know, that lot. And uh, these corporations, which represented the bodies that influence our daily lives, grew in power, but they weren't exactly united in any meaningful way. And by that, I mean that, you know, the medicine, uh, pharmaceutical industry, medical industry, it did its thing, but it didn't call up the media and go, hey, we're coming up with this thing. What do you think? Or, you know, the armaments industry <clears throat> didn't come up with a whole new set of guns and bombs and didn't call up the agricultural department and go, hey, what do you think about this? No, they gained power. They gained the influence, but they were not united. 
And the unity is the strength, isn't it? And that came later with the formation of the Bilderberg Group in 1954, when the most powerful men in the world met for the first time at the Bilderberg Hotel in Oosterbeek in the Netherlands to debate nothing less than the future of the world by synchronizing the activities of the industries and organizations that run our lives. In effect, then, that was the start of refining the process of the new world order, the one world government. The globalization agenda to run the planet as one company, to use Earth's resources as the inventory, and to use us as the labor force. So I recommend if all this is new to you, <clears throat> excuse me, new world order, one world government, that you research Bilderberg Group. It is easily researched. They even have a website and they'll tell you what they're up to. Of course, they don't say to you, oh, we are your overlords and we're ruling the world. They're a think tank, basically, is the way they present it. So research the Bilderberg Group, research Agenda 21, which uh, has its cover as a sustainability for the planet. But it really is far more nefarious than that. And also its continuation of Agenda 2030. Now, there's far too much material to cover in one podcast. So I'll tell you the Cliff Notes version, I think, the least you need to know. Deep state that runs our lives is an ideology. He who controls the economy, the creation and flow of money, controls the world. The visible government is a toy for the invisible government to play with. It wasn't conspiracy theorists, ufologists or people in bunkers in Idaho who busted deep state. It was congressional staffers and government accountants because they're the ones who follow the money. And when they follow the money, they find a world of woe. They were the ones who discovered that the military industrial complex was being used as a money laundering operation regularly and purposefully taking money out of the nation's infrastructure and putting it in the hands of rapidly privatized security industry. After 9-11, huge surveillance buildings went up to house defense contractors. But here's something interesting. Apparently 400,000 or, uh, or so of those contractors were civilians, not military personnel. But you can't be a government defense contractor without high-level security clearance. So why would we give civilians so much power? I think the reason's clear, if we think a little, because it shifts the power from accountable military personnel to non-accountable civilians, effectively privatizing the nation's security. Outsourcing the nation's security to private companies and what do we, the people, think the repercussions from that might be? Taking the defense of the nation out of the hands of the military. Well, it goes back to New World Order, the homogenization and ultimately dehumanization of the way we live our lives. No more sovereign states because countries would become corporate units. There would be a blending, as there is now, a blending of corporate and government interests. This is the evil of globalization I speak out against. As a shaman, as a citizen, as a human being and a purveyor of common sense, blending government and corporate with the goal of ultimately eroding our sovereignty, it has begun. It has begun in earnest. Many bills are written by lobbyists and not by politicians. If you don't believe that, please research it. Other points to ponder on this would be with regard to taking the money out of the infrastructure. People go, well, you know, Arnie, I'm not really sure that well, that makes sense. Well, hmm, why do we have such a fragile power grid? And it's not just Flint, Michigan that doesn't have clean water. Do we have well-maintained roads and bridges throughout the USA? How many people do we have on food stamps? Why do we, the USA, the land of the brave and the free, incarcerate so many people, more so than the Chinese do? And whatever you want to 
to learn about China or whether it's, you know, going into capitalism, it's still a totalitarian state. So why do we incarcerate more people than we do, than the Chinese do? And why do we put our people in private prisons where inmates work for a pittance while the goods they produce are sold at a profit? And you could ask, why are we, the general public, a cash cow for traffic police? And why are student loans designed to keep people in long-term debt? How many citizens, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, how many taxes are added to our utility bills? And why is the individual taxed anyway? I'm pretty sure that is illegal. My point being, the American citizen is nickel and dimed 24-7, while millionaires and billionaires hide their money in offshore tax havens and pay not one cent in tax. And I would also ask, why did so much money post 9-11 go into paramilitary equipment to equip, police for, to, to equip our police forces? I'm not saying they shouldn't be equipped. They should. But they're a civilian police force to, to protect and serve. The equipment some of these police forces were given, well, it's to subdue the people they professed to protect and serve. So these are just a few of the dots I'm throwing out there for us to connect. There are many more dots than I have given you. And I'd like to make a little tier map of Deep State and how its tentacles reach us. Before I do that, let me just mention again, this is so important. It was not conspiracy theorists who busted Deep State. They're not the ones that came up with the idea of the banking cabal that runs the government and every aspect of our lives. It was congressional staffers and government accountants, Department of Treasury and so forth, because they are the ones who followed the money and they followed the money out of the nation's infrastructure into the military industrial complex and also to foreign interests. All researchable, all of it researchable. So to recap, the ideology of deep state is spread through the secret societies and just some of these would be Skull and Bones, you know, Yale University, the Euclidean Society, New York University, Wolfshead from Yale, Stroll and Key Yale. Yale, I think, was the first college ever in the States anyway, um, <clears throat> pretty much very much influenced by uh, the German Hegelian model. So I think Yale has no less than seven secret societies. And for those of you who don't like to do a lot of research, there was a movie made in 2006 uh, directed by Robert De Niro. It's worth watching. It's called The Good Shepherd. It's set in the Cold War era, and it follows a Yale bonesman's career during the time of the Cold War where the OSS transitioned into the CIA. So number one, the ideology is spread through the secret societies. Number two, finance. It's spread through finance because finance is very important in our world because whether or not you are funded dictates which choices we make about our lives. Our credit scores, those are the new slave brands. After finance comes the military, useful in so many ways for procuring and protecting resources abroad and, as we discussed earlier, for laundering money away from the nation's infrastructure. After the whole military thing, we have the corporations. And we do know that we have fewer and fewer corporations and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. This is called consolidation of power. Then after the corporations, we have the legal system because it would appear that the corporations have a great deal of say in who writes the law. And then at the bottom of the deep state um, chain of influence we have the low-level, here-today, gone-tomorrow politicians, the visible government doing the bidding of the invisible government. So in response to all of the letters I had today about, uh, you know, deep state, those are my cliff notes on deep state, the understanding of which I consider to be of the utmost importance, because when we realize what we allowed to be created, and when we realize that allowing ourselves to be distracted from our much-needed involvement in all levels and branches of government, we will make every effort to co-create new systems for a new world, one that is celebrated through unity and diversity, through color, and honoring each other's traditions and sovereignty. And in that world that we will co-create together, 
We will not allow ourselves to be herded like cattle, told where to live, how to live, priced out of the American dream, which I believe is still a very real possibility if we just stop supporting the organizations that keep us indentured. Yes, it requires huge change, but the systems and structures in place right now, they're not working, they're not spiritually sound. And if we can bring ourselves to see through the blatant bias of the press, if their bias was any more obvious, it would be ridiculous. And yet people take what is written as the truth. They ridicule and demonize the people the press ridicule and demonize. And it seems they care not one jot to research the sources that have no conflict of interest or monetary gain. If the president stood up tomorrow and said that drinking water was good for you, The press would report it as president says, go drown yourselves. If he stood up tomorrow and said that it was wise to seek natural methods to boost your immune system, the press would report it as president urges public to ignore medical advice. How much more blatant can it be? So before we move on to the questions, my darlings, I know that was a question, but there are other questions. Before we move on to questions, answers and comments, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was the father of mind control and manipulation. Um, We know that today as public relations. He was Sigmund Freud's nephew, I believe. And he was very instrumental in turning marketing and advertising into mass mind control. He single-handedly helped the cabal refine their grip on this planet. Rest in peace, Bernays. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner If they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society, I beg to differ with that, Mr. Bernays, continuing with his quote, in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. And if you have not done so, there are three books that he has written that I recommend. They're short reads. Propaganda is one. Crystallizing Public Opinion is the other. And The Engineering of Consent is the other. So when you read those, you will realize, among many other things, how the power of advertising has destroyed the system of capitalism, which, in my opinion, is a perfectly good system if guided by a moral compass. Deep state ideology operates by disorienting our moral compass and distracting us from what is important, which is, of course, cosmic alignment, and focusing our attention on the procurement of material assets. Now, those are the cliff notes. Don't get depressed about it. Just be aware that this is what runs our world and this is what Trump and the patriots and critical free thinkers from all partisan affiliations are trying to expose at the moment. It requires a lot of guts to realize that you've been had. It requires a lot of guts to realize that you were wrong about something um, and wonderful, marvelous for all of us who awaken and go, I was wrong, and now I'm going to do something about it. And we can co-create a new world together. We thought we were free thinkers. Perhaps we were conformists to an extent. But the past doesn't matter. 
our awakening in that moment, that moment is the moment that matters. And our desire to co-create a better world, equitable, fair, united world, that's all that's important. Now with that, I think we should do Wizard's Gizzard first today. Because it's very important when you're discussing deep subjects like deep states and epic end of day scenarios and light versus dark. It's really important that you're in a good place and that you're soul centered because ultimately you've got to remember all points in time and space exist simultaneously. So we are in an illusion right now. Of course, there's value in the illusion. Otherwise we wouldn't play the illusion, but let's lighten up. And illuminate our energy. And let's do the wizard's gizzard. A little spiritual ritual that we can make habitual. I think we should do a little affirmation. To remind us of how powerful we truly are. Of how magnificent our souls are. And how much we are adored by our creator and by all creation. So just relax. And um, I will say the affirmation. And if you breathe deeply, it will clear your aura and put you all into a very good space so that we can carry on with our lives. I am infinite consciousness, the pure unblemished potential that is the creator. I am the eternal and ever loving energy of the islands of paradise, my birthplace in the heart of source energy. I am all that is, was and ever will be. I am source. I am the realm of archangels. I am the realm of angels. I am the gods and goddesses of all the universes and all the souls that were ever made. I am the celestial bodies, the suns, the moons, the planets, the stars, and all the spaces in between. I am not just my name. I am not just my occupation. I am not my bank statement or portfolio. I am not my disease. I am not my addiction. I am not the role assigned to me by another. And I am not my past. These things are merely experiences that my divine soul is having on the physical plane. These things may be part of my personality, but they are not my totality. And I strive to remind myself of this daily. This life is but one of many lives I have had and will have. I chose this experience. I chose it because I wanted to glorify the divine. I chose this time and this place so that my illuminated soul would act as a beacon for all those who were lost in the darkness. Have I forgotten this? Have I forgotten that I designed this life to be a glorious space adventure for the expansion of my cosmic soul? Let me remind myself then. I am the creation of a God who adores me. And I came here of my own choosing in service to that divine cosmic energy for my highest good and for the highest good of all. I do not see my interests as separate from another's. I am not distracted by devices created to feed my ego. I am not offended by the actions of others. I am aware I have compassion. I care, but I do not react to the drama of those who are not in their right minds. They too are a part of God. They too are a part of me. One eternal being and each soul most whole and most holy. Each one on a different path of learning through the realms of time and space. As I breathe slowly and purposefully, the breath of God raises my vibration to match that of the cosmic divine and all pettiness is dissolved. As I breathe slowly and purposefully, the breath of God brings focus and clarity to my mind I think and act from my divine awareness and my humanity is most grateful for the upgrade. As I breathe slowly and purposefully, every cell in my body is vitalized and my entire being is restored.
to optimal health. As I continue to breathe, slow, purposeful, deep, my soul is free to leave my physical body and refresh itself in the realms of light. It may only be for a moment, but one moment in the light is enough to wash away the burdens of 10,000 years. Who am I? What am I? I am source energy in action. I am powerful beyond all understanding. I am the vibration of unconditional love, eternal expansion of supreme cosmic intelligence. I am source energy in action. Well, don't you feel more powerful now? So before tackling the problems of the world, my darlings, I consider it essential to calibrate our energies and align with whatever you wish to call the divine. Because our creator adores us and we should be cognizant of that at all times because it empowers us. All right. Well, I feel groovy now. Let's move on to questions and answers and comments. So first question today comes from Penelope, who lives and works in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And Penelope asks, do pendulums work or is it just so much hooey? <laughs> well, Penelope, they work for some people and not for others. It's a tool like any other, a point of focus for your mind. My personal pendulum is highly active. My partner, on the other hand, can't get us to budge, let alone swing. So I suggest you watch an instructional video on the subject and experiment and practice. You see, the object itself, it has no inherent power other than the vibration emanating from the material it was created from. Your intention, that's where the magic comes from. So if you pick a pendulum, keep the item cleansed and see how it goes for you. And a bit of advice, I think an important point to remember when you're using tools for divination, you and the divine are one. You are not asking for information from an outside entity. That's very important. The guidance you receive comes from your higher self, the light most pure and whole and holy. Always affirm that before you engage in any divination exercise. I am one with the light most pure and holy, and all guidance is given from the brightest light that is divine love. Something along those lines, something that fits into your faith base or your idea of what supreme cosmic intelligence is. So have fun, and if you want, drop me a note and let me know how it goes. Here's another question from Glenn, who lives in Livonia. Never heard of Livonia, but apparently it's in Michigan. And Glenn says, did Marilyn Monroe commit suicide or was she murdered? Well, I wasn't expecting that. Okay, so, Glenn, I personally believe she was murdered. So when you look at it, the registered cause of death was acute barbiturate poisoning and the official verdict was self-administered overdose of sedative drugs and I think that uh, there are a few red flags with that because most of the coroner's inquest reports were made available um, the red flag part is uh, there was no trace of tablets found in her stomach or in her intestines even though she had huge amounts of chloral hydrate and nembutal in her bloodstream, apparently enough to kill an elephant. Um, I'm not quite sure what nembutal really is, but chloral hydrate, I think, is that drug they call a Mickey, um, a date rape drug. Um, and you don't need much of that to put someone out, but there was a huge amount of it in her. Now, I do know that digestion stops at death. Um, and I've had to deal with suicides myself. Um, and the nasty part of going to the... Uh, through the pathology and all of that. Uh, and if you ingest large amounts of tablets, the pathologist is always going to find partially digested drugs in the stomach. And apparently with Marilyn Monroe, there was no residue, not even micro residue. So that's a red flag. 
the pathologist also noted that she hadn't eaten on the day of her death and there was no alcohol in her system. So then they went on to look for needle marks to see how the drugs got in her body, but there were no needle marks. So you have to wonder, how did the megadose of drugs get into her body? Well, there was a telltale bruise on the back of her neck, which the pathologist said looked like a sign of violence. And if I remember correctly, the first officer on the scene from LAPD, uh, Sergeant Jack uh, Clement or Clemens, he said he thought it was murder. And he saw evidence of the murder scene having been cleaned up. And he accused the authorities later on of a, of a, of a cover-up operation there. So we got drugs in her body. What else was a red flag? There was, oh yeah, her colon was discolored. So there was nothing in her stomach, but her colon was disco- discolored. So I think it's safe to assume that the drugs were administered through the rectum, um, an old-fashioned bulb enema. Also, that's a, it's a horrible way to go, but it's, it's, believe me, it's quick. Um, there was no suicide note. And the police questioned friends and anyone having contact with her prior to the incident. They said she was in good spirits. She was fine. She was making plans for the future. She seemed normal. And they asked her psychiatrist to hand over the cassette tapes of any sessions he had with her to the DA. And the DA himself or herself concluded then no way did this woman kill herself. She had plans for the future. She was, she seemed compassmentous. Uh, other things, well, what else do we, we do know her personal filing cabinet was broken into on the night that she died. And another interesting point, the original autopsy report went missing. Um, a chap called Lieutenant Marion uh, Phillips said that in 1962, a chief, a police chief took the report to show someone in Washington and that was the last we saw of it, he said. So we, I suppose we can only conclude that it was a murder, but, but why? I mean, what, why do you kill actors? Uh, don't answer that question. Um, why do we kill Marilyn Monroe? Who killed? Well, mm, she was well connected, wasn't she? I mean, she reportedly had affairs with both John and Robert Kennedy. And she was known to have contact with a chap called Sam Giancana. And he was a top Chicago mafia boss. And he and Robert Kennedy were at war together because Kennedy wanted to take Giancana down. And there is evidence to suggest, um, apparently it was commonly known that Robert Kennedy visited Marilyn at her home on the day of her death. So I guess she knew too many top people and some of them were at odds with each other and they confided in her and she became a liability. Who executed the murder? Who arranged the cover-up? I personally don't think it was the same people. I think probably the mob murdered her. And I think Hoover had a hand in arranging the cover-up. So, Glenn, the more we research this, and I have to admit I haven't researched this for a very long time, the more you research this, the clearer it becomes, I think, that it was a murder and more than one party was involved in the cover-up. So, uh, interesting question. Thank you very much for it. And rest in peace, Marilyn, because we do know that you are not a dumb blonde. You were not the persona that was portrayed in the movies. You were a very intelligent woman who worked her way up and became very, very successful. God rest your soul. Okay, let's take another question. Uh, this one is from Alejandra. <coughs> Alejandra is from Spain and visiting her family in Oregon. How did you get in? How did they let you in? Hola, Alejandra. Bienvenida. Um, anyway, she asks, what is the difference between attachments and possessions? How do we avoid them? Ah, well, most attachments are what I call AEPs, assorted energy parasites. And they're basically manifestations of base unresolved emotions. So my analogy would be, if you don't take out your physical trash daily, if you keep filling it up and not emptying it and not washing out the trash can, in time, the trash will fester and putrefy and and it'll come to life, won't it? It'll attract flies and it will create maggots and worms and all manner of icky, sticky things. 
So imagine walking into a room where that type of trash has festered for years. There are flies everywhere, maggoty things crawling all over the place, a nasty stench filling your nostrils. Well, some of those creepy crawlies would stick to you, wouldn't they? They would stick to your physical anatomy. So the same happens with the energy anatomy. The unresolved emotions, they create non-visible energy creepy crawlies. And if you're having a bad day, if your energy is low or if you're feeling particularly depressed, angry, out of sorts, out of alignment, and you walk into an area filled with these entities, these etheric entities, well, they will attach to you. And unless you shake them off, they will think they are your friends and uh, they will want to attach. Now, as creepy as this sounds, we attract and remove these low-level attachments continually, day in, day out. You know, you leave a toxic environment, you come home, you take a nice hot shower, you relax, you have a drink, you lift your mood. The parasites feel uncomfortable in your new, higher-raised vibration, and they leave. You know, so AEPs, it's not a big thing. And this is another reason, by the way, I go on ad nauseum about daily breath meditation. It removes the little buggers from your energy anatomy. You know, just 12 minutes of deep breathing each day will transform your life. People from tragic to magic. So that's attachments. And you can have nasty attachments that are a little bit more difficult to move out. But on the whole, they can all be moved out. But the possession, yeah, that's a different matter altogether. It's also very rare. And it doesn't happen overnight. So low-level parasites don't possess you. A possession is by an intelligent entity, whether it's human or extraterrestrial or another race or even demonic. And possession is marked by a slow and steady change in character in habits. You allow, literally, bit by bit, day by day, another being to inhabit your body and influence your mind. How do you avoid it? Well, if you have a strong, healthy sense of self and cosmic alignment, if you're generally happy and generally at ease with your surroundings and you're somebody who wants to enjoy your life, you're curious, you're motivated, you have a sense of humor. If your baseline is a higher vibration, you'll bounce back quickly from bad days. And we will, you know, have those from time to time. And you don't really have anything to worry about. If, on the other hand, you have a victim mentality, well, that is a potential danger because it disconnects the mind from a sense of soul sovereignty and the natural desire to connect with your environment. Those are signs of real serious depression uh, and, you know, a victim mentality has many facets. It could manifest as a sense of racial superiority, for example. It could lead to serious mental illness it, when drugs are and large amounts of alcohol are involved, especially those dreadful new synthetic drugs that quite literally put holes in your brain, then all bets are off. Your humanity is on mute. I mean, I've seen people tweaked out of their brains on these synthetic drugs. The human personality is somewhere in there, but muted. But the actions of the body are directed by another entity completely, and it's not always human. And the person has given up their body to be used by God only knows what. I have seen, pardon my French, some strange shit over the years, believe me. So possession can take many forms, but tweaker drugs aside, it's a slower process. So if we're diligent and caring of one another, we're able to watch for changes in character and behavior. And we can take steps to prevent the possession and the decline in mental health. I would just say to people out there, when your kid says they're depressed, they don't feel well, um, don't blow it off. You could be catching something at the very beginning. So this is a big subject, and I do sort of eight-hour workshops on it. So I'm just going to have to wrap up for today and say the best way to avoid it all is to fill our minds with wonder. We live in a universe filled with wonders. And I can't imagine not being curious and motivated to explore it. So it really is true. Be happy and they'll leave you alone. <laughs> Thanks, Alejandra. I hope you enjoy your visit to Oregon and I hope you're able to travel back to Spain. Um, anyway, I mean, not that we don't want you here. You can stay as long as you want. 
But uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what the what's going on there if you're allowed back. Probably if you're a Spanish citizen, they're going to let you back. So, all right, my darlings, I want to thank you for those questions. <clears throat> really enjoyed them. Let's take a look now at um, Tarot A Go Go. Yes, folks, uh, quite a few have written and said, you sometimes skip tarot and sometimes you skip philosophy. And can you just get your stuff together, Arnie, and try to fit everything in to one hour and do a slightly better job? After all, you've been doing this for over a year. Um, point taken, my darlings. I'm going to carefully time myself starting next week. So let's do Tarot a go go, a little shenanigana with the major arcana. We reviewed the devil on the last show, number 15 in the uh, Rider Waite deck. So this week we review number 16, the tower. And what a delightful little card this is. Uh, not. <laughs> it's a building, isn't it? It's a tower on fire. And it looks as though it's been hit by lightning and everyone is jumping out of it, looking very unhappy and unsettled. But is it necessarily a bad thing? After all, if your building is destroyed by fire, it no longer serves you. So it's time to move on, perhaps. Clearly, this card represents the collapse of a structure. But that structure is not necessarily a physical building. It could be the collapse of an old way of life. The structure of your way of life has flaws and can't support you anymore. And we're going through that on a collective level, like you wouldn't believe right now when we say that the systems and the structures that we have put in place um, are not based on fairness. They're not equitable. And so they have to be hit by lightning. So that's the tower is really the card for this era. It's a bolt of energy, a shock, a disruption. It means chaos, potentially, havoc, not necessarily crazy. Remember, when you get a card, you could have tower chaos level one through ten. But either way, it's a shocking revolution, um, revelation or revolution, hopefully shocking news, a crisis. But let's remember, with traumatic change comes unavoidable changes. When the universe pushes you into change, this heralds a release from bondage, a liberation from the current illusion. So it's a cleansing, it's a purging, it's a purification. And sometimes we need a good shake up to eliminate everything that is worthless, everything that is harmful. Because sometimes we just don't do it ourselves. We need a kick up the arse. If our plans are based on false values... They should collapse, shouldn't they? If we're way off track or hiding in our dark towers, a jolt of lightning may be just what we need to regroup. So when you pick this card, don't panic. Just get ready to deal with significant change. Think of it as an opportunity to cleanse, purify, vitalize and stabilize your life. To let go of the baggage, anything you don't need, leave it in the tower. It's on fire. It'll burn up. You'll never have to deal with it again. Now, if you pick this card reversed, it generally means the worst is over and you've started again from a healthier perspective. But it could also mean that you're still stuck in the unhealthy patterns and the situations, but you are working through them. Either way, when you pick the tower, you don't ignore it. It's asking for your attention. So the tower, number 16. What a fabulous card. All right. That's tarot a go-go for today. And I think I'm doing good. I'm actually going to be able to get in our next section, which is Plato Chips, where we quote a philosopher of note. So today's Plato pick is, God, I really thought about this because there's so much I want to cover. Um, but I'll be doing the show until Nancy Hopkins kicks me off it. So I made a pick for Voltaire, the wonderful Voltaire, which is a pseudonym uh, for Francois-Marie Arouette, who was born November 1694 in Paris, Paris, France. 
home of the most delicious pastries in the universe. And he died May 30th, 1778, again in Paris, France, still the home of the most delicious pastries in the universe. So who was this chap and why do we care? Well, he was a writer, a philosopher. He was a dramatist. He was a poet, historian. And um, he was a polemicist of the French Enlightenment. And that is a person who engages in controversial debate. And boy, did he like to debate. A man of great intelligence, great wit. Why do I like him? I like him because he's a bit of a wild card. And I do like the bad boys of philosophy. I like him because he was a vocal supporter of social reform. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But back in his day, censorship laws were very strict and penalties for breaking them were harsh. And his persistence to push social reform and to satirize organizations that sought to control the world, despite the threat of incarceration and other sanctions, definitely influenced free thinkers of the American and French revolutions. And he ended up in prison more than once, and he was exiled for his persistence, I think, more than once. So when I say he was a prolific writer, so you say, well, he wrote a lot of books. He produced works in almost every literary form, plays, poetry, novels, essays, historical works, scientific works, and uh, 21,000 letters, I believe, and over 2,000 little books and publications and pamphlets. So he was born to bourgeois parents, quite wealthy. He was educated by the Jesuits. Um, I'm not going to say anything about the Jesuits, but in those days, if you didn't have a religious education, you didn't really have an education. And he learned everything that you would expect him to learn, Latin, Greek. Uh, he was also fluent in Italian, Spanish and English. Um, his father wanted him to be a lawyer, but he did not want to be a lawyer. He wanted to be a writer. So uh, Voltaire pretended to work in Paris as an assistant to a lawyer, but he actually spent much of his time writing satirical poetry. And when his father, you know, sussed him out, he sent him to study law in the provinces. But Voltaire, um, you know, continued to write. So his wit made him very popular among the aristocratic families of Paris. He became... Um, very famous and well sought after. He had a great deal of uh, style. Society circles loved him. Wherever he went, he would attract, he was, you know, he would attract the aristocracy, as it were. Um, I think eventually his father obtained a job for him as the secretary to the French ambassador in the Netherlands. So he goes off to the Netherlands. And there he falls in love with the French refugee, Catherine uh, Dunoyer. And he tries to elope with her where Voltaire's father catches him, and he was so ashamed, so ashamed and so embarrassed, he was forced to return to France. So from an early age, I think, we see he's a bit of a rebel. He had trouble with the French authorities because he attacked the government and the Catholic Church. And as I mentioned, I think previously, that resulted in numerous imprisonments and exiles throughout his life. He also became involved in a conspiracy against... Um, God, what was his name? Um, Philip II, uh, Duke of Orleans. Then he was the regent for King Louis XV of France. Uh, and as part of this rebellion, they put him in prison in the Bastille for 11 months. And you think, well, that would knock the rebel out of him. But no, he wrote Oedipe, one of his most successful works, and it established his reputation. And it was at that time that he actually named himself Voltaire. It's an anagrammatical play on words. I, I don't pretend to, you know, to know about that. So that was his that was his pen name, Voltaire. And people thought, well, this is it now. He really has separated from what his family wants him to do. Uh, let's see what else he did. Who else did he piss off? Um, oh, he pissed off a young nobleman, the Chevalier de Rohan, in 1726 who issued what they call a lettre de cachet. And that, in essence, exiled Voltaire without a trial. And they banished him to England, which I don't think is exile. I think England is lovely. But they banished him to England. Go to England, they said, 1726 to 1729. And this was wonderful for Voltaire. Wonderful because he was very impressed with how much the British 
supported freedom of speech and how lax they were with religion compared to the French. And so he hobnobbed with a lot of uh, various authors, of course, but also philosophers. Um, and, you know, he studied Isaac Newton's works. And when he came back to France after his three-year exile, he published a work entitled uh, Lettres philosophiques sur les Anglais, uh, Philosophical Letters of the English, uh, telling everybody how wonderful it was in England. But that, you see, the French didn't like that. <laughs> and so they burnt the copies of his work, and he was forced to leave Paris again, uh, 1734-ish. And then he goes and he's exiled from 1734 to 1749 at uh, a chateau in northeastern France, which was owned by the Marquis Florent uh, Claude de Châtelet and his wife. Now, his wife, Emilie de Châtelet, is better known than he, better known as the actual Marquis, because she was quite an intellectual and uh, she was well known for that. In fact, Voltaire and uh, Emily du Châtelet became lovers and they also became collaborators. They wrote books together. They wrote a lot of books together and they had a great interest in science, natural sciences. They even uh, built a laboratory there at the uh, chateau. Um, and they wrote historical treaties, scientific treaties, and they wrote treaties on metaphysics and uh, broached subjects that uh, people in France didn't want to know about at the time, like the justification for the existence of God and the validity of the Bible. This chap out and out renounced religion, called for the absolute separation of church and state. He wanted more religious freedom. Um, a surprise he actually was ever voted into the Académie Française, given his radical views. Anyway, once uh, the Marquis, uh, the uh, Emily de Châtelet, Marcus, died, he moved out of the chateau to Potsdam near Berlin. And he was uh, under the uh, patronage, I suppose, of Frederick the Great, who admired his work and gave him a salary of 20,000 francs a year, which I think was pretty decent money in those days. And in the beginning, he got on very well with Frederick and the 20,000 francs was lovely and all that. But uh, then he started to um, attack the president of the Berlin Academy of Science, and that really pissed off Frederick. So once again, they started burning his books and they threw him out and they said, go back to Paris, you idiot. So he went to Paris to avoid arrest. But Louis XV banned him from returning. So now he had to go to Geneva, to Switzerland, and he bought an estate. And in the beginning, that all went very well. But they didn't like him after a while and they banned his publications and they banned any theatrical performances. And eventually he had to leave. And at this point, he was really, you know, he was a little bit desperate. Finally, by 1759, he settled down at an estate uh, near the Swiss border and he lived there for the next 20 years of his life. And he basically received all the intellectual elite of his time. People would come and visit him and uh, he would pontificate and uh, discuss with them. Uh, he did manage to come back to Paris in 1778 and they did give him a hero's welcome. But he was 83 and he died. <laughs> the excitement of the trip was too much for him and he died. But he died in Paris. And apparently his last uh, his last words were said to have been, for God's sake, let me die in peace. Well, and the church, uh, because, you know, he really ragged on the church, denied him a burial in the church ground. Uh, but I think what happened to his remains, he was finally moved to a resting place in the Pantheon in Paris. His heart was removed from his body, and it now lies in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. And his brain was removed, um, and it sort of went missing after an auction, as far as uh, I remember. So there we are. The most famous quotes and my favorite, actually, from Voltaire. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. That's the one he's known for. The other one I like, common sense is not so common. Voltaire, this week's highlight on Plato chips. Um, our nod to the importance of learning the fundamentals of philosophy. Uh, Go learn about Voltaire.
the bad boy. He's wonderful. Well, my darlings, how did this happen? It's five o'clock. I think that's it for today. I finished my drink, which was lovely. And that always means it's the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it, because I had a blast. Our next show will go out live on Wednesday, May 13th at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and will be available on Cosmic Reality's YouTube channel a day or so after the live show. Today's real-life martini was four parts Oregon's own Crater Lake Vodka Yummy Yummy and one part Lillet Blanc, dressed with a giant Spanish olive, stuffed with an almond, because it's my show and I can do that. Now, remember, folks, cocktails are great when they are part of an occasional treat. If you use the finest ingredients available and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is all you need. I'm Arnie Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Avedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.